Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. We started the rollout of this podcast around the 4th of July, so it felt right to revisit and sample the finest comment ever made on Independence Day. Here's an excerpt from Frederick Douglass's speech in Rochester, New York, in 1852. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Before I started organizing about five years ago, the only time I heard the word abolition or abolitionist was in a school context, like in history class, referring to people who fought to end this particularly heinous brand of chattel slavery we had in the United States. But the abolitionist movement didn't end with slavery. It evolved and became known by different names. After Reconstruction, freedom fighters in the states were gripped up in the civil rights and black power movements. But when you look at what people have been fighting for, there's always been a struggle to abolish systems and institutions that exclude, subjugate, and destroy black, brown, and poor people. Redlining, Jim Crow, colonialism, and militarism, for example. Radical abolitionist movement building has always been what pushes this country forward. Since the rise of American shadow imperialism after the Vietnam War and the repression of the black power movement by the FBI's counterintelligence program, a new era of legal bondage through mass incarceration has emerged. Today's abolitionists understand modern police institutions to be directly descended from fugitive slave patrols. They see the American judicial system enacting lynch mob justice thinly veiled in ritual and decorum. They see prisons as socio-political plantations. The abolitionist movement is alive. It didn't end with the Emancipation Proclamation and it didn't begin with slavery. In the lineage of Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist movement has reemerged in the public consciousness with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the resurgence of the movement for black lives. Hey Malik, how you doing? I'm all right, Bill. How are you? Really well. I, we're going to sit down and have a conversation about a couple of things. Um, the thing that's on my mind most is this question of defunding the police. And the reason is, it's a, a, a concept and an idea that's broad and big, but it's devolved into a slogan. And one of the things about a slogan is it's useful because it's quick, but yeah. it's 
difficult when you start speaking in slogans you should go back and ask yourself what does it really mean where did this come from yeah and I, and I think it's important because I think we have a job a responsibility those of us who believe in this for example to explain it to people in a language that's understandable so I thought we should talk first about what do we mean when we see say defund the police not just repeat the slogan louder right. and louder but what would it mean to defund the police in Chicago or really anywhere yeah, so to me, it's it's kind of frustrating to hear uh, kind of the pushback. And, you know, we, you oftentimes hear on, the, on public radio, you know, people mean different things when they say defund the police. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I feel like it's been a unified message. And there's only really one way to interpret defund the police. That means take away money from whatever entity is running the police department or whoever's giving money to the police department that's usually coming from a city budget or in a sheriff's department um, situation that's coming from a county budget but it means reallocating funds it means taking away money from a failed system uh, and and injecting it into another system um, and so with that whether that means public housing whether that means education health care mm -hmm. mental health um, those are all areas that we feel like if you invest in, uh, you'll start to see the outcomes where you won't have to um, criminalize people. And when people don't have what they need, they begin to lash out and they begin to, to get what they need in means that can be considered illegal. Um, and so to, to avoid that, investing in the, the areas of, of life that people need to thrive and flourish um, is, is how you counteract that. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense to me. You've named a lot of systems. So one of the ways I've thought about it is the failure in education, the failure in public schools, the failure in mental health and health care, the failure in housing policy, the crisis in homelessness. These things get congealed in the police. And so instead of solving the homeless problem, you criminalize homelessness. Right. Instead of investing in education, you say, well, we're pushing kids out, and so what? They're on the street. The last entitlement becomes a confrontation with the police and then going to county jail or going to state prison. You're entitled, right. Yeah. It's the last entitlement. You're not entitled to a library card or a decent education or a job or mental health care or physical health care. And what's funny to me is that you, if you hear police... You know, if you hear police talk about what is the what are the problems with the police department, or what, why do why do um, certain communities have so many issues with the police? And one thing that I've heard repeatedly over the years, uh, as I've been organizing, is police do too much. Police are are uh, required to do too much. We're responding to to mental health crises. Um, and what that really means when you boil it down is they're begging to be defunded themselves. They're telling, they're asking for resources to be taken. They're, they're saying, we don't need to be doing everything that we're asked to do. And at the end of the day, that means when you have less on your plate, you need less resources in order to accomplish those things, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, they're saying we need other institutions, entities in, within communities to be able to take care of some of these things that we are not equipped to handle. Right. So police should not be responding to, um, to to mental health crises because they are people with guns who are showing up escalating situations rather than de-escalating situations. And there's so many, you know, I don't have all the answers. Right. But but we need to be able to, like, empower people to think creatively. Right. Pay people to think creatively about how to solve these problems rather than paying 
people with guns and weapons to brutalize people. Right. There are two things that come to mind. One is I really like that angle of saying they themselves are calling to be defunded. And there's another angle to look at that, and that is that nationally, the Trump administration has defunded the police by closing down inspector generals, by mm. closing down white-collar crime units within the Justice Department. So they want to defund the police that are policing the white-collar criminals. And we're saying, look, if you invested in powerful social institutions, if you invested in social workers, mm -hmm. mental health crisis workers, good teachers, smaller classrooms, then the idea of defunding the police isn't so complicated. The other thing you hit on right at the end is you said people show up with guns for a simple, a simple problem and they're armed. And my friend Angela Davis was uh, talking the other day to my son actually, and she said the funniest thing. She said she has a friend who's a firefighter and in the neighborhood where she lives. And he said to her, look, if you ever have a personal problem, like maybe somebody's breaking into your house, call the fire department and tell them you smell smoke. They'll show up with sirens raging. They won't have guns. Nobody will get killed. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was the funniest. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a funny image. But, but so really we're, we're hitting on a lot of ways to think about this. But the other thing I think you have to put before you Before you move on, though, that when we're talking about, when we talk about alternatives, right? Like at the end of the day, part of why it's scary to say defund the police for a lot of people is because they feel like when something happens to me, I need to have someone to call, right? I need backup, I need, right? And so part of that is an admission that the police don't keep us safe, right? They respond when something happens. That's A. And B, you know, people are doing amazing work in, in technology and in, in tech and making apps on smartphones and all of this stuff. Why can't we figure out how to develop a program where we can call people who aren't trained to brutalize us? We can call people who are trained to like take care of these crisis situations and they show up, right? Exactly right. But I also think we can not only call on people who can support us, but we can support each other. And I think one of the problems that we have in our country today is that the, the reliance on community has, has kind of disappeared or, or maybe been undermined. And I think that's a real problem. We yeah. have each other. Yeah. And that's the main thing we have. So in a functioning family or in a functioning community, you have problems, but you kind of solve them together. And, and that's where we should be headed rather than armed intervention by mm -hmm. armed agents of the state, mm -hmm. right? And the other piece I would say is that the police budgets are bloated. They are extremely over the top bloated. So if you have $7 billion of military equipment offloaded from the Pentagon to local police forces over the last several years, that's a catastrophe. So you were telling me today there's a tank on a, on a busy intersection on the west side. Yeah. We don't need tanks. What are we talking about? Yeah. So it's that kind of funding that we need to think about. I mean, this is not complicated. And if we had a certain kind of society where people cooperated, where we worked together, where we had functioning institutions like schools and hospitals, we wouldn't need so much policing. I agree. And I'm, I'm interested to know, you, you've been organizing for a long time. You've been doing movement work for a long time. Has this particular conversation around defunding police departments um, come up in the past? Uh, and, and maybe how, how has the conversation been different this, this time around? Well, you know, it has been around for a long, long time. And I, I go back as an organizer, really, 55 years. 
And the thing that's interesting to me about this political moment that we're living through, and I consider this the latest iteration in the centuries-old black freedom movement, but what's interesting is that 55 years ago, we were talking about reparations, we were talking about police brutality, mm -hmm. we were talking about community control of the schools and schools that were relevant to kids in the city and so on. So these aren't new conversations, but you say, what's different today? What's different today is, is profound because what's different today is a cadre of young organizers like yourself who've been working for five years at least trying to create a narrative in which this conversation makes sense. And so suddenly, in the crisis following George Floyd, the crisis of the pandemic with the underlying conditions of white supremacy and capital, you know, plantation capitalism, what we see is that all the organizing work that you've done across the country, the Movement for Black Lives, Black Youth Project, I Can't Breathe Collective, all of these... Let Us Breathe Collective. Let Us Breathe, I'm sorry, Let Us <laughs> Breathe Collective, and, 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 and Undocumented and Unafraid, all these organizers have created the conditions where the narrative is being grasped broadly in a way it never has been. I never could have imagined that reparations would be discussed on CBS or would be discussed in the pages of the New York Times, but it is. And I, I attribute that to the organizers. Some people say it's all about the cameras and catching this stuff on camera. I don't agree. I think that matters, but I think what really matters is that people have been out knocking on doors, creating a narrative, and the narrative makes sense. It explains what we're seeing. The incidents themselves are just happenings, but the narrative has power. Right. And I attribute that to young organizers. I think you're right. And I, and I think, um, I think the, the fact that we're seeing these images of brutality um, kind of disseminated really broadly across social media, um, is part of it but just like you said that we are also organizing through social media right so the images are being are being broadcast in that way but that is that's not what is kind of you know mobilizing people but what's mobilizing people is the digital organizing a and then the the kind of relationship building um, in cities like Chicago the the coalition building you know you're 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 speaking about undocumented and afraid like a lot of a lot of the power that's been built up in Chicago over the past five years that I've been organizing, and obviously, you know, Fred Hampton's legacy is the Rainbow Coalition, right? You know, Absolutely. bringing bringing people together from different cultures uh, to to understand that our our struggles are all interrelated and interconnected and intersectional. Um, I think that approach is what has really, um, you know, it, Chicago is a very special city in terms of organizing, and and and, and that is the driving force behind it, that coalition-minded um, approach to relationship building. And I see that across the country. I agree with you. Chicago is a hot spot. Mm -hmm. But I think that what's really interesting is that you mentioned Fred Hampton, the great Black Panther leader on the West Side, who was murdered very close to where we're sitting right now. And the, the thing about that murder is it was galvanizing in a certain way. But remember, the narrative that went out from the public, from the press, from the public media, and so on, was a narrative that it was a shootout, mm -hmm. right? It was not a shootout, it was an assassination. And, and you bring up Fred Hampton, and that makes me want to bring up the Black Panther program. So that was an organizing program. Yes, you're right, it was a rainbow coalition. But look at the issues they were talking about. 
beginning with police brutality, beginning with community control of the police, and then schools that, that teach what's true and what's real, that are based on the experiences of kids, not based on some abstract Eurocentric mm -hmm. nonsense. And I think that you go back there and you say, wow, that was prescient, that was pretty good stuff. But I think that you guys have taken it to a whole new level. I'll give you one more example from Chicago. Let Us Breathe Collective, the, um, uh, the, the coalition that, that formed around stopping the building of the police academy. Mm -hmm. No cop talk, academy. Yeah. The, the cop academy, no cop academy. So here we have two concrete examples of organizing and also of um, defunding the police. No cop academy. Here we are in a system with failing schools, with, with over, overstuffed classrooms, with not enough supplies, not enough materials, not enough teachers. And here the mayor of Chicago proposes building a $95 million police academy on the west side. Now that's a recipe for social suicide. Yeah. That's <laughs> insane. And yet the, the collective that focused on that, the um, No, no Cop, Cop Academy, Academy mm -hmm. group, they were literally knocking on doors all over Chicago, especially in the area where uh, the mayor had proposed building this thing. Mm -hmm. And they were asking some simple questions. Questions like, if you had $95 million, what would be your priority? Wow. Now that gets the citizenry involved in a real way in looking at what it means to defund the police. And, and then what do we do with the money, right? Like once you have, once you give someone the opportunity to actually think about allocation of resources at that scale, right? Like the, 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 the New Cop Academy, I think, was proposed to be built in Garfield Park. I That's used to right. live in Garfield Park last year in, in East Garfield Park. And I walked walk my dog up and down the streets, like steps away from the Garfield Park Conservatory. And the number of vacant lots or vacant empty apartments up and down Holman Avenue, up and down uh, Walnut, right? They're, they're, it's, it's insane. And to think about what you could do with all of that money, right? There's so many people dealing with homelessness in the city. What kind of housing program can we figure out where, where we're figuring out what to do with these empty apartments and these people who have no, no place exactly. to live? What's fascinating to me about that, that's true in Chicago, San Francisco, Oakland, mm -hmm. and housing activists are raising this. You got all these empty spaces and you have all these people who need spaces. What's the problem? The problem is racial capitalism. The problem is, where's the profit? Right. And as soon as you take that out of the equation, you could begin to solve problems. Let me raise one other thing about defunding the police. So the police academy is one example of concrete organizing mm -hmm. that would defund the police and invest in real social programs, real educational programs that we need. The other one is we're in a big campaign right now to get the cops out of CPS, out of the Chicago public schools. Why is that? Because the Chicago public schools starved for resources, starved for decent facilities, overcrowded classrooms. Chicago public schools pays the Chicago police $32 million so the police officers can sit in the front hall. Yeah. What is crazy about that? I mean, that is so nuts. And we need that $32 million, And why is it going to the cops? Yeah, and then the other wild thing about it is the, politic the politicization of it, right? So the, this conversation around defunding the police kind of cropped up at the end of, end of May, early June uh, of 2020, of this year. Um, you know, came back into the mainstream around that time. Uh, 
in the meantime, the city is due to pay CPD that that you know that that thirty two million dollars for this past year's uh, quote unquote services, um, and they're late on their payments. They have not renegotiated the contract for the next year, and they know that the the fact that for the most of twenty twenty there have been no children in schools and hence no need for any kind of security forces in there. This this all is being rethought by our city government and our mayor, uh, but. Because they don't want to piss off, I, I don't know for what reason, for what political reasons, she won't. Uh, she won't take that step, that that progressive step to say we're rethinking police in our schools. There, she's obviously doing it right because of what's going on. She should because be doing of the it movement. because of the movement right. and because of the pandemic. Right. To, to to be fair, but. Be, be, for some reason, it's like this tug of war between young black organizers in the city of Chicago and Lori Lightfoot, where she is taking every opportunity to thumb her nose at us and to to uh, to push back against our narratives around what change the city needs, um, even when she's doing it herself. So. Absolutely, but I think that I think you got to remember, she is the mayor, and mm -hmm. therefore, even if she's got a progressive platform that she ran on, even if she is, um, you know. Uh, says some of the right things. She's the mayor, and it's o the only thing that politicians respond to is political pressure. And so, again and again, I think we have to come back to the fact that fire from below mm -hmm. is what brings about real change. Not the good heart of the leader, but the, the good strength and power of the movement. And that's why whatever else we do, let's not, uh, let's not lighten up on sure. being in the streets and, and, and bringing this forward. I think the logic of it is inescapable. That may be why she's considering it. She also has a long history with the police, so you know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, and the same the same problem that my son has and other people have, you know, she's relying on the police, so she can't quite come all the way toward us. But at the same time, we shouldn't give an inch in terms of the demands that we are putting forward. And she will come to us when the movement is strong enough. Indeed, she will. And to be clear, this is a means to an end, right? This yeah. this idea of defunding the police is definitely a means to an end towards abolition, right? We want to get rid of police departments and we want to get rid of prisons. And I think part of what scares, um, maybe what part of what scares some of the politicians that we're talking about uh, is that defunding the police is a, is a means to that end. And they see that and they know that. Um, and they're afraid to take that first step. But... We're going to continue putting that pressure on, on the powers that be to, to understand that um, abolition is in the future. Yeah, and you know, if you think about it, what, what abolition unleashes is the radical imagination. So you say to yourself, what would a world without prisons look like? And when I first raised this, I was giving a talk at the University of Pittsburgh, and I said, I think we should abolish the prisons. And of course, the first question was, you were kidding, right? And I'm like, no, I really think, this is years ago. Mm -hmm. No, I think we should abolish the prisons. And the guy says, well, what about John Wayne Gacy? That's always what people <laughs> right. say. You know, they always say the most extreme example of what could happen becomes the, the, the default position for everybody. So we must have the death penalty because of John Wayne Gacy. We must have prison. So I said to the guy um, who asked the question, what mm -hmm. about John Wayne Gacy? I said, hmm, okay, one prison cell. Uh, who else? Who else? And then I said, I'll give you Bush and Cheney. Who else? <laughs> but, but, but the point is, if you start from the default position that says anyone who transgresses, anyone who breaks the law or makes a mistake has to be punished. And anyone who has to be punished has to be put in a cage. If you start with that logic, 
then you're going down a path that leads to two and a half million of your fellow human beings right. living in cages. There's no way to avoid it, right? You can't avoid it. But if you start instead by saying, what would we need? And I said this to these kids in, at the University of Pittsburgh. What would we have to have as a society that could allow us to do away with prisons? And I said to them, let's make a list of a thousand things. And honestly, you could make that list. Mm -hmm. And it starts with decent schools. It starts with jobs. It starts with you know guarantees of income, good health care, child care. And you begin there, and you before long, you've got a hundred things. That's the society we want to live in. Not a society that's barricaded with so many people living in cages so the other people can have some illusion of security. I think that's what we have to keep saying. Abolition means a decent society. Absolutely. And abolition is possible. Let's take up this other question that we've been talking about off the air, and that is this question of public unions. I know you have a feeling about this, and I know I have a lot of experience with it as well. Yeah. Let's talk. So obviously, I think in the, in the kind of public discourse, there's, there's been a lot of conversation around police unions. What, what is your take on public sector unions? Do you want to start or you want me to start? I can, I can start. I, I, so I definitely have a problem with police unions. Um, me too. And I don't quite understand teachers unions to the degree that I, I can be for or against them. Um, but I have concerns. Uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I feel like teachers um, should be uh, evaluated in a way where we can know, are they doing a good job, right? Are they teaching the students what they need to be taught? Um, but I also feel like they, they should be protected um, and that they should have a degree of um, a degree of job security that you know um, a contract or a union contract can give them. But there's something around there's something about holding these these particular professions accountable uh, that I don't know I don't know how you do it. Well, I think it's a it's a conundrum it's a contradiction and I think you've actually identified it very well. Let's start with teachers teachers deserve some protections. You don't want some arbitrary superintendent coming in and saying, oh, you're fired because I want to hire a younger person at lower wages, or you're fired because you're an immigrant, or you're fired because you're a woman. Before there were teachers unions, I think it's, it's evident and, and, and it's provable that before there were teachers unions, the superintendent or the Board of Education would not only hire their friends, their cronies, but they would, women made lower wages, black people were discriminated against in New York City, and this was the tradition of how public schools work. The unions put an end to that. So then the unions come in and they say, no, you know, if you are working this job, equal pay for equal work, whether you're a woman, whether you're white, black, whether you're Latinx, you know, and that was progress, that was important. On the other hand, you point out they need to be accountable, and to whom? And my answer is, Public employee unions are not like private employee unions in the sense that in a union in an industry like the auto industry, it's the workers negotiating with the bosses. In a public employee sector union, it's the workers and the bosses and a third party, either explicitly or implicitly. The mm -hmm. third party is the public. Right. And so that means that if you... I'm dead against police unions. I think they should be abolished. I think... In many places, including Chicago, there should be mass firings of police officers. I think that there should be open disciplinary records that you can access on your phone 
so that every cop who has a dirty record, everyone should know it, not, right. not just one or two people. But why shouldn't there be police unions? Are, are, well, are police not workers? No, I, I, what I'm going to say about police unions is that they have a history. And the history is, is not just that they've gotten wages and benefits for their, for their members, but they have lobbied to resist accountability. They've lobbied to shield implicated cops from consequences. That's why they should be abolished and we should start over. But yes, I think associations of workers, even public employee uh, workers, should exist. But if they're not operating in the public interest, they should be resisted by the public. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I can give you two examples. Let me give you two examples from the, the teachers, and then I'll because I feel very complex and mixed about teachers' unions. But then I'll give you an example from police. Two examples from teachers. Chicago Teachers Union went on strike several years ago, and I think it was 2012. Won a phenomenal contract for their for their uh, for their folks, but it was a it was a common good strike. What I mean by that is they were striking. They by law were only allowed to negotiate um, wages and benefits. Mm -hmm. Every poster you saw on the street was. We need an arts program. We need more counselors. We need more nurses. The teachers were standing up for the kids, and it was done arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, with parents and community members. That's a public good strike, and and so I think that that we can support the Chicago Teachers Union in that strike. We can say this is working. This is good, and not only was it good, but it spread all over the country. So that in red states like West Virginia and, and Arizona, suddenly teachers were coming together demanding decent schools, fighting for public education. That's So how great. does that work, though? They, they were able to win things that they were not even by law allowed to negotiate. They for. were not only able to win them, but they were able to put them on the agenda, just like you organizers have put on the agenda, defund the police or reparations. They were able to put it on the public agenda so that people could look around and unleash their, their, their wildest imaginations and say, why is it that all the rich kids go to schools where they have an arts program? My school doesn't have an arts program. That in itself is a win, even though you don't necessarily win the art teacher right that right. time. But look, they just went on strike again. And what were they striking for? Nurses and counselors in every school. That's a public good. We can support that. Right? right. Let's compare that to the 1968 teacher strike in New York City, which I was there for. Mm -hmm. And that there, the union, which was fairly new and flexing its muscles, it was a slightly moderately socialist union, but it had a white blind spot as big as all outdoors. Why did they go on strike in 1968? They went on strike because the black community in Brooklyn, starting in Brooklyn, was demanding community control. And the teachers went on strike in opposition to community control. Every progressive teacher, everyone I knew, crossed the picket line. Mm -hmm. It was very hard for us to do that because right. by nature, we don't cross picket lines. But that was a public employee union running against the public. In Chicago, we had a public employee union fighting for the public. So we need to make that distinction. We don't say good or bad. We say, let's look at the content. If you're doing the right thing, then we'll support you. If you're doing the wrong thing, we'll call, hold you accountable. Uh, so the Fraternal Order of, of Police is fighting for uh, to, to be able to hide 
records. That's uh, exactly accountability it. records. They're, they're it, fighting it, for things against the public interest. Exactly. So it's comparable to the 68 teacher strike in New York. They're fighting for their selfish self-interest against the common good. The common good in a democracy, in a free society, with free people. You would never have a police union that protected its members from the public even knowing what their records were. Right. I mean, I want to know, the cop who stops me and asks me to stand out of my car and frisk me, I want to know if he's been disciplined 25 times for what he's done. There's no way to know it right. because they have, the police union uses its clout, lobbying, giving money to political candidates, supporting district attorneys, where they don't have to be accountable. That's why I say abolish the police. At unions. every level, though, right? <laughs> they they fight against that initial accountability for those police officers. Then they fight against if that accountability is won, they fight against that accountability being made public. So yeah, at, at every level, uh, police unions are 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 fighting against uh, the interests of the public. Yeah, and and it's against the common good. So what I would say is, when we look at a public employee union, whether it's you know, I'll give you another example. But whether it's teachers or police or prison guards, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, we have to look at the content. We can't just say, I support unions, I don't support unions. We support workers' rights in general. But in specific, if a group of teachers goes out on strike because they want the opportunity, this is literally true in New York in 68, teachers said, I have the right to use corporal punishment against misbehaving kids. And the committee said, no, you don't. No, you don't have a right to hit my kid. Mm -hmm. And so they go on strike for that, I'm against them. Right. If, the, if the police go on strike to protect you know, dirty cops, or they go on, even the term dirty cops is bullshit because in reality, it's a rotten barrel and there are a couple of good people. Everybody knows a good right. person who happens to be a cop. That's different. Right. The system itself is terrible. And so if the cops are gonna have a union that lobbies to protect police that never have to answer to the public, I want to oppose them unconditionally. But if, on the other hand, teachers go on a strike and demand arts in every school, nurses and counselors for kids in poor schools, yes, I can support that. Without saying uniformly, I support public employee unions or I oppose them. Right. I can decide, right. I can think. Absolutely. Great answer. I, I, um... So, so did, did the, the 68 New York strike, did that have anything to do with integration as well? Were, were they opposing integration? <clears throat> it did, integration? it did. And in fact, in fact one of the, the way it had to do with integration was this, that parents, black parents throughout history, throughout the history of the United States, have wanted education for their kids. The tactics have changed because, because of resistance. Yes. So, so there was a long period when in New York City, the struggle was, led by black parents, was, I see that this school works. I want my kids sitting in a desk in that school yeah. because it works. When they gerrymandered all the school districts, when they pushed kids out, when they maintained segregation through both law and custom, then black parents said, okay, you won't let my kids sit next to your kid, then I'm gonna control my own school. And then they said, no, you can't do that. Yeah. That's, that's wrong. And that's when the teachers union took the wrong position. But that's the point. If you go back in history, fights for integration, fights for community control, you know, fights for accountability of teachers, you know, fights for funding, fair funding, all these fights are the same fight, but they're different tactics. So we should never get in a position where we're saying, 
I, I believe in this tactic. I don't, I don't believe in tactics at all. Yeah. I'll use any tactic to reach the goal of justice, fairness, decency, peace, you know, joy, love. Those are the goals. The tactics vary, and they vary given the circumstances. So yes, 68 was about the education of black kids, but it was about the education of black kids after decades of resistance to integration. So that's the takeaways from the day, y'all. If, if you, uh, you know, if your public sector unions are doing things that are good for the public good, then you can get behind them. Um, if not, then you don't have to. Uh, I've been listening to a really dope podcast called Nice White Parents. From Oh, uh, me too. I've been listening, listening to it. To it? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of information in there about um, kind of New York in the 60s and 70s and exactly this conversation that we're talking about. So check it out if you like. But one, um, one thing that kills me about that podcast, it's like so many things. A white person can be well-intentioned and have a good heart and still fumble all over himself <laughs> by, 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 by thinking if people would just do it my way, then we'd all get better. Right. I think that's a must-listen to podcast. It's a must-listen because it shows, it shows how, like you, exactly like you said, how well-intentioned white folks oftentimes um, are bulls in, in China shops when it, when it comes to exactly. the people who have existed in certain communities for years and in certain institutions. Um, it's really about building community, building relationships, learning about people, learning what makes people tick and what drives people. Um, and that's, that's how you, that's the best foundation for, for operating together with anyone and building strong communities. Yeah, I mean, anybody who comes sweeping into an oppressed community and thinks they have the answers, whether it's a politician or a well-intentioned liberal, definitely does not have the right answers. I mean, you know, it's a matter of recognition. It's a matter of recognizing the humanity of the folks themselves. And what we used to say in, in, you know, in the old days in the new left was the people with the problems are the people with the solutions. Mm. You know, if you don't believe that, then you're coming in with your brilliant idea that you cooked up at Harvard Policy School or somewhere, yeah. but nothing, that's not it. Nothing for us without us. Exactly. What is exactly. it? Nothing for us without us is... I can't, I can't remember. What is it? Well, it comes from the disability movement. Ah. Nothing, with, nothing about us without us. And they it's wear t-shirts. Yeah. And the idea is, you politicians, you liberals are going to sit up there in the state capitol and tell us what we need. We know what we need. And we'll tell you what we need. You know, we don't need you to, to be the beneficent lady bountiful coming in here solving yeah. our shit for us. You know, people sure. with the problems are the people with solutions. And if you want to really change society, you got to go to the margins and to the bottom and work up. It's time for our Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours segment. That's A-A-A-A-H, and it's pronounced as a question mark, an exclamation point, or a simple sigh. Ah, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours. Here's where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, about what is to be done, or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our radical imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but how things might be otherwise. Today, I have the great pleasure and honor of welcoming Alec Karakatsanis. He's the author of the book I want to talk about today, Usual Cruelty, which is a mind-blowing book. It's a book that really made me think differently, even though a lot of these issues are things I 
worked on for a long time, but it really made me think differently. Alex, the founder of the Civil Rights Corps, a nonprofit organization that uses innovative litigation, advocacy, and storytelling to challenge the systemic injustice of the criminal punishment bureaucracy. Before joining Civil Rights Corps, Alec was a public defender in Alabama and Washington, D.C. Welcome to Under the Tree, Alec. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here with you, Bill. Uh, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be with you. And I, I wanted to start by asking you, in these dizzying, crazy times, uh, can you tell me a minute just how you're doing and where you're finding joy? I'm doing okay. It's it's a very difficult time, as you say, and particularly for, for our work, because the incredible indifference and suffering and cruelty um, that is being inflicted in our cages all over the country, the 3,163 local jails and the 1,800 state prisons and the federal prisons and the immigration detention facilities and the facilities where we cage children, and these are places of unspeakable pain, right? And as, as you know, um, we have allowed these places to become grotesque torture chambers where people are um, deprived of all of the basic things that we take for granted in life, sunlight, fresh air, exercise, adequate food, nutrition, medical care. They're, people are sexually assaulted and physically beaten. And it's in that context, they're separated from their, their children. Um, it's in that context that a viral pandemic is raging and, and um, they lack basic hygiene and sanitation. They're unable to socially distance like the rest of us. And so over the last few months, I've been working very hard uh, and our organization has been representing um, the human beings who are confined in many of the major jails around the country, including in your hometown, the Cook County Jail, um, where we represent thousands of people who are confined there. And obviously it was the site of the one of the largest outbreaks in the country and seven human beings died in the Cook County Jail. Um, because of their exposure to the virus, so it's it's been a it's been a time of of um, you know confronting head on the monstrosity of the criminal punishment bureaucracy and and what it's doing to people and their bodies and their minds and their families. As as you and I are talking, there's three hundred thousand human beings in solitary confinement in this country, mm. um, and so we've been we've been working through that. But at the same time, you and I are talking at a moment of incredible potential and revolutionary energy uh, sweeping the country and the uprisings in the wake of the uh, killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many, too many other people. So I'm a little bit um, uncertain how to answer your question because I think we are at a time of enormous abolitionist possibility, maybe unlike anything that I've seen in my career, but also we are at this time of unspeakable pain and suffering for those on the inside and those who love them. You know, I think I think you've done such a great job in such a brief time in in naming the contradiction because that's exactly the contradiction we have to swim in, and I don't know anyone who does a better job of diving into that contradiction than you. And I am so taken by this book. Um, it's called Usual Cruelty. It's published by the New Press out of Washington, and it's been out what for about a year. It came out at the end of October, so um, not even a year. Oh, not even. Not even a year. The, the two things that you do that, that were striking to me, <clears throat> one is you, and, and they both involve challenging the common sense. The common sense says we live under the rule of law. The common sense says we have an institution called law enforcement. And right from the beginning, you upend that common sense and you challenge it. And you remind me that there's nothing more dogmatic or insistent 
than common sense. Say a word about the rule of law and how you, uh, how you rethink that for us and, and a bit about law enforcement. Sure. So one of the pervasive features of a criminal punishment bureaucracy that we have in this country is that it, it um, tries to justify itself as if it's some kind of neutral um, uh, attempt to enforce the law. And you can see that with invocations um, by many of the leading punishment bureaucrats all over the country, you know, people like Preet Bharara or Eric Holder or Barack Obama, um, people who, who um, invoke the rule of law as if it's some kind of neutral principle and as if um, this country has any kind of history of, of some of objective neutral enforcement of, of legal and moral principles. In fact, I think if you look at the uh, hundreds of examples that I offer in the book, and, and if you and if you look at the history of this country, you'll see that um, the law, as it as it's sort of you know referred to, is really just um, a set of rules that people who have power um, articulate for the rest of society to follow. Um, once those people have articulated, and those rules can be things like it is legitimate and, and lawful to own another human being, or it is the law mm. that. Um, certain people can't vote, um, or it is the law that, that um, people are not entitled to unionize, or it is the law that people are entitled to um, torture animals on factory farms. I, mean, I could go on and on, right? Um, the, the, at any yeah. given point in history, you know, at some point in history, it became the law that people couldn't possess a certain list of plants that were on a list of plants the government says you can't possess. All of these articulations of, quote-unquote, the law are, are um, impossible to remove from their political, racial, economic, and historical context. And if, if when I look at the history of, of American laws, I look at um, a history of rules that are designed to further really two or three main concepts. One, uh, white supremacy. Two, um, the ownership of capital by the owning class. Um, most of our laws are geared around preserving the ownership of of things by people who own things and want to own more things. Um, also, uh, certainly th throughout the entire history, there are uh, many laws intended to regulate uh, and enforce um, certain notions of, of gender. Um, and you could go on and on. There are other sort of strands um, through the history of our laws, but I think those are just some examples of the, of the several of the most dominant forms of, of what even determines what becomes a law in this society. Mm. You know, for example, under President Clinton, um, a bunch of uh, very wealthy bankers uh, really wanted to, to turn uh, this particular form of gambling into uh, a profitable uh, business. And so they convinced Clinton and, and Congress through a series of campaign donations to legalize what had previously been illegal gambling in, in the form of certain types of derivatives trading. And it still mm. remained illegal in most of the country to, for poor people in the streets to wager over dice. Right. Um, but it suddenly yes. became completely lawful and, and indeed very, very profitable for large banks and very wealthy people to do all kinds of new types of wagering uh, over over things that, that could cause real harm. So, for example, when people wager over the global supply of wheat, millions of people can starve when the price fluctuates. Um, mm. Now, in terms of law enforcement, this is another term of propaganda, very similar to the rule of law. Um, law enforcement is what police increasingly call themselves. Um, it's a term designed to get you to, to ignore that 
the police are only ever really enforcing some of these laws against some people some of the time. Um, so, for example, where I, where I was in college at Yale University, there was rampant law breaking uh, among the owning class's children, right? People um, who were drinking alcohol underage, um, even though alcohol is actually a substance that's far more harmful than many drugs that have been um, rendered illegal. Uh, it's very legal in this country for, for a variety of reasons. Um, again, racial, historical, cultural, um, uh, tied to capital. Um, but even those laws um, were being broken by, by students, and, and many, many of the laws prohibiting possession of certain substances were being broken every single day on that campus. And yet, um, there weren't SWAT teams with military gear raiding those, those dorm rooms and caging people and handcuffing them with metal chains. Instead, those raids the New Haven Police Department chose to do uh, down the block in predominantly black communities throughout New Haven. Mm-hmm. Um, arresting people for the same behavior, um, uh, people with a different skin color. And that same example plays out in every single major American city and town. Every single city and town in this country has disproportionate use of armed agents of the government for, let's just say, drug offenses, just to keep with this example, against black people. Um, how can it be that in thousands of jurisdictions that exact same pattern happens every single place? And, and that is the, the myth of law enforcement, this myth that there somehow a law is broken, it must be enforced. Well, to the contrary, many, many laws are broken every single day by all of us. Many, many people don't pay all of their taxes. Many, many people commit felonies every single day that involve um, a wide range of behavior. I, I mentioned narcotics, I mentioned tax evasion, but there are many, many others. Um, and 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 these are the kinds of, there's, for example, a, a rampant, um, uh, pervasive uh, problem with, with mortgage fraud by large banks and large corporations, which led to hundreds of thousands of home foreclosures, which we now know killed thousands of people because they've done some really great public health studies on the, the, the link between home foreclosure and death. Um, and so this is rampant law breaking, but we don't, um, I'll just give one more example if you'll indulge me. Um, yes, please. There's a massive wage theft problem in this country. You know, mm. conservative estimates put that at fifty or a hundred billion dollars stolen by employers, mostly from low-income wage laborers. Um, this is never prosecuted by any of the thousands of DAs or U.S. attorneys all over the country. Um, wage theft dwarfs by a factor of about ten, depending on the low-end estimates. All other theft, robbery, burglary crimes combined in the U.S. And it's completely ignored by this quote-unquote law enforcement apparatus. Same with the several hundred thousand violations of the Clean Water Act every single year. So my point really, and I give more examples in the book, but the point is that you have to understand the quote-unquote law enforcement quote-unquote apparatus um, as part of a larger bureaucracy that has very particular political, economic, and racial goals. And it only enforces um, certain laws to the extent it serves those goals. So, so what language do you suggest in the book or, or now? What language do you suggest? Not law enforcement, something that speaks more truthfully, um, not, not the rule of law, but how, how, do, how do we express it? I think that there's many different ways one could uh, give a more realistic perception of what these people do. You know, you could call them wealth preservation bureaucrats or white <laughs> supremacy <laughs> agents. Or um, I, I take, you know, when I'm, when I'm not trying to, to um, distract people in the conversation, I just, I, I typically will call them police uh, or police right. officers or 
government bureaucrats or government employees or agents. It depends on the context, but I think it's very important not to use propagandistic terms like the Department of Justice, right, which is the largest human caging organization in the world. Um, there's a very clear reason why the U.S. government changed the name of the Department of War to be the Department of Defense. These are all right. intentional attempts to um, propagandize the population. And I think those of us who are very interested in the way we use language and the way it shapes our minds have to be careful about how we talk about these, these types of institutions. Yeah, you know, you pointed to something, though, that I also would like to return to, which is we're at a moment of rebellion, a moment of uprising, um, the trigger being the George Floyd execution, murder, lynching right in front of everybody. Um, but, but suddenly things are being rethought in a very profound and fundamental way. This must give you some sense of vindication, joy, happiness, um, uh, an opportunity perhaps to take your work much, much further than we ever imagined we could take it. You think that's so? I think you're onto something very important, Bill, and I, and I know you and I have discussed this before. I, I think you know, we met shortly after I had um, first spent a lot of time in Ferguson after the murder of Michael Brown. And when mm -hmm. I got to Ferguson in 2014, the city of Ferguson averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household almost all of which were for unpaid debt. So imagine having way more arrest warrants than you do people um, in the mm. city. Uh, mm. and, and it's in that context, uh, mind you, almost all of the arrest warrants are for black people. In my um, right. almost six years now investigating and litigating that case against the city of Ferguson, I have yet to find a white person who's been jailed for non-payment um, in th many thousands of black people. But anyway, mm. um, imagine... In that context, rampant abuse by the local, converting the entire local police force and jail and prosecutor's office and judges into a mechanism for revenue generation. I mean, people would be arrested on these warrants and then ransomed. The police would say, pay us $300. And the family would say, I don't have $300. And the next day they'd come back and say, okay, fine, give us 250 And then, they'd, well, I don't have $250. Well, the next day they'd come back and say, okay, fine, we'll let you have your, your mom back if you give us $100. Right. And, mm. and that was what it was like for thousands of people for years in Ferguson. Now, in the face of all of that and much, much more, I have barely scratched the surface in the last 30 seconds of what was going on in Ferguson. Do you know what one of the big solutions for, from the so-called Department of Justice was? It was to hire more police officers, to give them more wow. money for better wow. training. Right. What, what kind of a, of, a, of a person or entity looks at a city where black people are being targeted and their bodies are being ransomed for municipal profit at, at rates that, that exceed, arrest rates and human caging rates that exceed the, even the number of people in the town. What kind of a person or entity looks at that situation and says, you know what we need? We need more handcuffs, more police cars, more police officers. And that is a fundamental problem with this so-called criminal justice reform movement. Again, a term I don't like to use, criminal justice. I mean, I don't want to anyone to think that the purpose or effect of this system is to do justice. But imagine that. And, and in the wake of Michael Brown's murder and the protests, what ended up happening in Ferguson was a federal consent decree that the DOJ and the federal judge and, 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 and the city of Ferguson have interpreted it as a requirement to spend more money on the police. And mm. what feels different about this moment in time is there has been years of incredible abolitionist organizing and your 
you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with many of the leading figures in, in, Absolutely. in that work and yep. that movement. And I personally have been very inspired, you know, by the work of, of critical resistance out in California and uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis and, and Miriam Kaba and so many other um, local activists and organizers who we get to work with in all of our work all over the country. Um, there has been an incredible um, generation of visionary ideas about um, divesting from uh, the punishment bureaucracy and investing in the things that human beings need to flourish in their lives and their communities. And that's what feels different about this time. Um, when uh, a bunch of establishment um, people in the wake of George Floyd's killing released this ridiculous platform called Eight Can't Wait. I don't know if you saw that, Bill, but um, lots of people were jumping on this bandwagon and it was, it was you know, reformist reforms, right? It was things right. like, um, well, the police should warn you before they shoot you and we should slightly <laughs> tweak the language in their use of force policies and things like that. Um, those people were beaten back by a, a new generation of, of incredible organizers uh, and, and scholars and thinkers and ordinary people and led, I think, mostly by people who've been directly impacted by the prison system or the jail system, police brutality. Um, and, and those people said, no, we, we need to defund the police. The old, this is an institution that throughout, from its origins in slave patrols and in union busting, labor attacking, um, you know, thuggery in, in the early 20th century, um, the police forces have always been a tool of white supremacy and capital. And, and so we, we need to fundamentally rethink what it means for communities to be flourishing and safe. And that feels different. And that's what feels like it, it's a moment of much more possibility. There's a, uh, it's impossible for most ordinary people in this country who haven't been targeted by police to look at what the police are doing now on all of these videos to protesters, to advocates, um, obviously to, to black people that led to the people being in the streets. And it's possible for you to look at that and say, you know what, police need more money and more resources. I think people have had enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're pointing something hugely important because I think the videos are very important. But honestly, I think the last five years since Ferguson and a little before, uh, the organizing for prison abolition, the organizing against police uh, excesses and against the police uh, as an entity, I think these things have been on the ground for five years. And when the rebellion started, I had no idea, but I think they have been, the, the brilliant organizers from Black Lives Matter have been able to frame the, the narrative in a way that I think is captivating. And I think it's pushing forward. I mean, it gives me just tremendous hope and energy um, just seeing it. But I think you're right. You, you mentioned the, the history of policing and the slave patrols and the labor busting. And let's not also forget the Texas Rangers and, you know, Indian killing. That was also part of the, the history of policing. So in order to face our, our present situation, we have to understand that reality. We have to tell the truth about what policing has been in this country. And it hasn't been about public safety. It's been something quite different. And I think you, your book does such a phenomenal job of, of, of pointing to what that is. So I really am grateful for that. You know, you, you talked about the, the, you're critical of the notions of reform, and I, I am 100% with you on that. I was fascinating in your book because the Civil Rights Corps, um, we had Chesa Boudin on the podcast earlier. And as you know, he's my son and your friend. Um, but you're very skeptical of these progressive um, 
prosecutors. In fact, you you have in your book nine or ten things that you say none of these progressive prosecutors have done um, to to push things forward. You you name things like none of them have reported reducing prosecutions. None of them are calling for smaller prosecutorial offices. None of them are seeking massive shift in investigative resources away from the crimes of the poor, and so on. I'd be, I'd, I'd like you to just speak to that in this context of this moment. So I've been very skeptical of the progressive prosecutor movement as some kind of panacea or end goal, you know, and I think it's very, and I've had, you know, as you know, conversations with Chase about this a lot uh, prior to and, and since right. his election. And and I think the most important point, and I make a lot of points in the book about so-called progressive prosecutors, but most of whom aren't very progressive. Um, so, you know, Chase, I think, is is obviously the most progressive of, of the ones who've been elected and, and will be a real test of some of the predictions and theories that I raise in the book. Um but the the, right. the thing that I'm most skeptical about is I don't believe that um, we can make the kinds of fundamental structural changes that we need to our society through a, someone like a prosecutor. And so what I'm right. most interested in is those types of interventions that are going to help ordinary people in their communities build power and relationships that can test the forces in our society that have a lot of power. And so I, I'm interested mm. in progressive prosecutors to the extent that their campaigns and their rhetoric and the work that they do is actually raising awareness and building relationships and political power and organizing that could then be used in other fights, right? Locally, statewide, nationally even. Um, so I think there is something good about this movement trying to focus people and get them engaged and bring them into um, a political process using something like a campaign like that around, you know, um, issues that are quite salient, like the criminal punishment system and, and, its, and its abuses. And um, so that's really good. But, but I, I think um, most of the people that have been supporting so-called progressive prosecutors as some kind of um, panacea, I think, are losing sight of the fact that prosecutors have a lot of power in our legal system right now. But I believe that's because they have traditionally been using that power to target poor people and black people, um, mm. um, Latinx people, indigenous people. Um, the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, they've been doing certain things with that power, and so therefore our system have, has given them a lot of power. But the moment you start to use your prosecutorial power to go against powerful interests in our society, I think prosecutors are going to lose a lot of power. So for example, um, if Chesa, your son, my friend, um, were, to, were to announce tomorrow that um, because of um, you know uh, incredible histories of inequality and, and looting by by um, prominent capitalists um, and years and years of, of racist housing policies. Um, there has been a resulting uh, incredible homeless um, problem in California. And, and there, it turns out that many, many people in San Francisco have vacant bedrooms in their homes. And some even have multiple apartments mm. and multiple homes that they rent out to other people. And so if Chesa announced that he was not going to prosecute anyone who didn't have a home or a house, um, for going into and sleeping in a spare bedroom for someone who has a spare bedroom, um, I think that would cause a lot of outrage. Um, and Chesa, right. basically by saying, I'm not going to enforce this 
this rule of private property that has become such a central component and maybe even the most important function of the police in a place like San Francisco and, and, and all over the U.S., um, the most important function of the police when you get down to it is making sure that I can um, use the force and violence of the state to keep you out of the things that I own, even if I stole those things from you and your family um, over the course of the last 100 years or 200 years or 300 years or 400 years. And, and so if Chesa made that kind of announcement he would become the least powerful person in San Francisco. I guarantee you the entire apparatus <laughs> right. of local state government and corporations and wealth would array against him and said and would say, it is absolutely unthinkable that we wouldn't prosecute people for coming in and taking up free spare bedrooms. And yet, in a city like Los Angeles, there are more vacant apartments than there are people who don't have a house. And how do we get there? It's and how do we use the force of police and guns and chains and violence to enforce that way of life. But that's my problem with prosecutors. I just don't, I don't see them as um, fundamentally able to, to combat that power and wealth, um, th th those kinds of more fundamental issues. I think they're great at lifting up some of these issues and, and, and helping us focus on some of the things that, that are real inequities in our society. And, and, and yes, they can be less cruel than their predecessors, right? And Chesa certainly is. And Chase has done an admirable job reducing the jail population in San Francisco with, with the help of other people. But um, fundamentally, if we're going to change these structures, um, I think we need to get much, much deeper than, 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 a, than a prosecutor. Yeah, and, it, and as you say, it's not a panacea. We joked during the campaign that we wanted Chase to get elected so we could denounce him. Uh, but, but that's because I never thought I'd support a prosecutor. But the fact is, as, as you're pointing to, Fundamental social change does not come because of some person at the top or some person in some elected position who has a good heart or a good head. It comes from fire from below. And that's why I think we're, you and I and others are so interested in this moment because I've never seen a rebellion this, you know, this widespread, this deep, and raising the questions that it's raising, exactly the questions you're raising. Why are there homeless people? And then you th see things like in, in, in Seattle, where the Capitol Hill occupied uh, zone, that's an incredible project. And they have their own kind of um, public safety ideas about what should go on there, their own ideas about housing. And in that moment, public education is really taking place in the street. So I think, you know, we're into something unique, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't think we can predict, but I think that the conversations we're having now are conversations that when you wrote your book were on the margins, and they have shifted into the center, I think. I think and hope you're right, and that might explain why so few people have, have got my book. Uh, but, um, you know, I think um, <laughs> certainly my grandmother loves it. it. Uh, my parents love it. You know, you well, love it, and that's all that matters. Um, <clears throat> Well, really, I think I really I think that it's a it's a book for these times. I think it's first of all it fits into your back pocket, and I do think that some of the deeper issues that you get into, and and the kind of the the far-reaching nature of your analysis tells us not to stop with some superficial reform, some police training, some body camera. It shows us that it's much much deeper than that. So I think for organizers, this is a book that actually matters. Um, it could help us stay on course and not get tricked into some superficial idiocy. And I the, the point that I was pointing to, the page that I was pointing to about what none of the progressive prosecutors have done, 
I think that's deadly and important. It's a one paragraph, and it tells you what they could do, including not only prosecuting the police, but prosecuting their own attorneys when they withhold evidence. Nobody's ever heard of that, right? So I think they, I think it's an important book for this moment. I, I think I think I hope that's right. I hope that the ideas in the book um, resonate more now in this moment, and I, I certainly um, tried in the book to give people some rules of thumb for how they can tell whether a particular proposed reform is a reformist reform. It's not going to really do much. It's going to preserve the architecture of the mass punishment bureaucracy and maybe just shave off some of its most grotesque flourishes, or whether a reform is going to fundamentally help to build power to transform the system. And, and, I, and I tried to give some examples of each and, and help people, because I think we're going to be in this moment now where we're going to be bombarded with quote-unquote reforms. And many of those Absolutely. reforms are going to be Absolutely. attempts by the system to preserve itself and trick people. Right. right. So, so say more about that. What are some of the, some of the principles or some of the guidelines that we should be looking at as we're barraged with so-called reforms? I think one of the big ones, and, and this is really in the zeitgeist right now, but is, is the reform giving more resources or maintaining current levels of resources to the punishment bureaucracy? Um, so, you know, there's one reason the police unions actually had the idea for and supported body cameras, right? They wanted hundreds of millions of dollars in technology given to police departments for cameras that they control that would take them into the same neighborhoods, right. harassing and arresting the same people, right? With now with more evidence and more surveillance of those people with cameras they control. Um, and so that reform, not a good reform, right? Instead of asking, why are police in this neighborhood in the first place? Why do we need them? What are they doing? Why are they brutalizing people? Um, right. The reformist reform was, well, let's just watch them when they do it, you know? Um, and so, but because of the, the there, there's this intuitive appeal because of so many decades of utter lawlessness, many, many people who, who, who you know, haven't been sort of involved in these sort of abolitionist fights and haven't been organizing around these issues and, and, and haven't really been immersed in, in how these systems function, it was understandable that people would support body cameras for the police because people want to know what the police are doing. And, and some of the videos of what the police have done have been the impetus for enormous um, upheaval, you know, starting with Rodney King. Um, but, but we have to understand that uh, the video of, of Rodney King and then the video of Eric Garner and the video of, of all of the videos that we've unfortunately had to keep watching, these modern-day lynchings, Tamir Rice and 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 uh, so on and so forth, up through George Floyd, and, and now some of the videos that have come out in the last few weeks, Elijah McClain and um, the, the horrific video in, in Tucson, Arizona, and I could just go on. But none of these videos coming out are stopping the police from functioning in the way they've functioned for the last 100 years. Uh, in particular, the last four right. decades. And so um, why is that? It's because none of the prior reforms have ever resulted in a reconceptualization of what the police are doing and a, and a divestment from the police. So whether you're talking about prosecutors or police or jails or prisons, uh, the number one principle is, are you reducing the amount of resources? Are you closing jails? Are you closing prisons? Are you closing child detention facilities? Are you closing immigrant detention facilities? Or are you opening new ones? Are you giving them more money and more resources? Are you giving them better training, quote unquote, right? So 
um, that is the the you know I, I'm a little bit more eloquent about it I hope in the book but I you know the basic principle is this is it defunding or funding right um, and right. the second one is you know right. where another another one that I think is very important is um, who maintains the power and, and control and discretion under these reforms um, is it still the the police um, or is there some or the prosecutors or whatever. Um, or is there some meaningful uh, democratic oversight by the people over these systems, right? So re- most of the police-supported reformist reforms rely on judges and prosecutors and sheriffs and police to exercise their discretion. Um, mm. And so, for example, a lot of these bail reforms that are being proposed say, okay, maybe we should get rid of a little bit of, of the cash bail system. It, it's, it does seem wrong to have 500,000 human beings in jail any given night because they can't pay cash. Um, why don't we give judges more discretion to do better things? You know, we'll, we'll increase their discretion to detain people without cash bond and hope, hopefully they'll use it better, right? Um, uh, as wow. opposed, and that kind of reform is going to lead uh, as it did in the federal system after they eliminated cash bail, to a dramatic increase in pretrial detention. So after they got rid of the injustice of cash bail in the federal court system, pretrial detention rate has tripled in the last 30 years, even though it's now illegal in the federal system to jail people just because they can't pay. Um, and so a wow. good type of bail reform would say, um, not that judges have discretion, but it would say, uh, you do not have any discretion to detain someone prior to trial in this category of cases. You must release everyone in that category of cases and you cannot require them to pay cash, right? So removing the discretion of the actors in this punishment bureaucracy to do the bad things. Um, or, mm. you know, a lot of police want there to be these sort of toothless oversight boards, right? But if you actually had community-controlled oversight boards that would hold police accountable and could control um, hiring, firing, funding, things like that, that'd be meaningful changes in who has power and who has the ultimate authority in some of these jurisdictions. So those types of reforms, like where is power and discretion held, um, is another key one. And then right. maybe the, the last one that I'll, that I'll right. say here, um, oh, there's more in the book, um, is I think that most of the current reforms that, that punishment bureaucrats are putting forward are what I call forward-looking there are things like, okay, well, going forward, we have to, um, you know, rewrite our use of force policies to be a little bit better. Or maybe we're going to give the police mm. some better training on, you know, how to deal with um, racial bias in their own ranks or, or how, how to deal with mental illness a little bit better. As opposed to repairing past harm, which might mean dramatic investments in communities, right? This, this idea of reparations for all of the many decades and centuries of um, racist and, and, and um, extractive um, policing. And so most of the people who are proposing reforms are uninterested in repairing some of that harm and actually figuring out what we owe to these communities. Um, and they're much more interested in, in keeping the conversation forward-looking, preserving the existing distributions of wealth and power that were secured through the violence of police, um, Think about what happened, for example, in Tulsa a hundred years ago, right? Ninety-nine years ago, um, you know, right. and and then think about what it would mean to actually reckon with what we owe um, for the ways in which the the state apparatus at every turn, led by the police, um, has brutalized people and and enforced um, laws that we all recognize now are unjust. And and so I think this this forward-looking versus backward-looking distinction is another one that that will help you. 
understand, um, you know, whether uh, a reform is is likely genuinely targeted at at transforming our society or is targeted at just preserving most of what it looks like. You know, as I said earlier, this book is an essential read for organizers, for prison abolitionists, for police abolitionists, for progressive organizers at this moment. And you've just summed it up brilliantly. Who, you know, what are the resources spent on? Who has the resources? What are you spending them on? Who has the power? And where is the power controlled? And then looking forward as if we can just sweep everything that happened under the rug and we're starting from zero. That's all really stuff to watch out for. I think that's a great, uh, again, put it on a three by five card, carry it in your back pocket. Those are the kinds of things we need. And I think your book does a phenomenal job of giving us the ammunition to go into these struggles, have conversations that we may have been having amongst ourselves, but I don't remember ever seeing on CBS or NBC conversation about reparations uh, before the last couple of weeks. And I think it's an exciting moment. And I think your book is perfect for this moment. I want to thank you for joining me under the tree, and I want to continue this conversation. We've run out of time, but thank you so much, Alec, for joining me. Thank you so much. Let me just say one more thing, Bill. Um, All of the royalties for the book are going to an incredible organization called the SE Justice Group. It's E-S-S-I-E. It's an organization that organizes women with incarcerated loved ones. And so you won't be supporting me if you buy the book. So I encourage you to, to buy the book and, and, and read it. I hope you like it. But also you'll be supporting an, an amazing organization doing amazing organizing work. Alec, keep rising. I really appreciate all you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. So... Before we leave, let's also have a homework assignment. And the homework for today is, what kind of society would we build in order to actually abolish the police? What are the qualities, what are the policies, what are the principles that would make a society decent and caring and loving and when we don't need police forces? That's the homework. That's the homework. Come up with some ways that that we we can make something better than what we have right now. Beautiful. Cool. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise, and to my workmate in arms, Malik Alim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Our music is by Tom Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and justice on my mind. Until next time. Black for the skin, green for the land, red for the blood, steady freedom's hand.